me what's the reason Nobody is satisfied Jump around from one to another Don't they know it gets cold outside It's a fine line Between love and lust Between truth and trust Yeah, dreams and dust What's up, folks? This is Steve Fletcher, your host of Steve's New Music Guide. I've got an early Christmas present for you all this week. I've got an interview that I conducted with the one and only Oliver Wood of the famous contemporary indie folk, rock, jazz, funk band, The Wood Brothers. You've probably heard of The Wood Brothers. They've got almost a million monthly streamers on Spotify alone. Oliver Wood came out, as you may know, with a fantastic album last year, uh, the end of May 2021. His album, Always Smiling, came out, and I had the privilege of interviewing Oliver a little bit after that release when he played here in town, uh, here in Charleston, South Carolina, June 2021. I'm sorry it's taken so long to get you this interview. I wanted to make sure it was just right. Um, and I was looking back over the year and thinking, before we move into another year, I've got to dust off these tapes, put this interview together, and bring it to you. I'm really excited to share with you now my interview with Oliver Wood of the Wood Brothers, conducted uh, right in the middle of the pandemic in June of 2021. Check it out. What's the reason? Everybody don't live their dream. I guess they just stop believing that it's easier than it seems, and it's a fine line between love and lust, between truth and trust. All right, so uh, Oliver Wood, let's uh, just want to thank you again for being on Steve's New Music Guide. Um, I know you must be busy as you are kind of pivoting back into what is increasingly becoming a new normal. Certainly there is an element of the old normal here as well, but uh, as we all get back up to speed post-COVID, um, I'd imagine you in the music industry as a performing musician are uh, probably excited, uh, scared, overwhelmed, enthused about some of the opportunities that are coming your way. Uh, you certainly, Oliver, have uh, quite the collection of live shows, of studio albums, of road scars to your name. Um, and so I, uh, I'd wanted to first, before we kind of take it to the beginning real quick, and certainly we'll eventually get to your exciting, amazing new solo album. But before we do any of that, um, we've got to address the big issue, which is we are coming out of a once in a lifetime uh, experience, global Hopefully. experience. And uh, that has changed the trajectory of industries far and wide, particularly industries where the artists or the creators make a large portion of their, uh, of their living through a uh, service or a product that, that must be shared often in order to be 
in order to be kind of compensated. Would you mind talking a little bit about where you're at cognitively, physically, socially, musically, creatively uh, in in 2021, given where we've been and, and where we are and maybe where we're going as a society, both a society in general and a society of, of music makers? Sure. Yeah, well, I found um, a lot for me, a lot of positives came from the, uh, the lockdown, as it were, and uh, making money was not one of the positives, but a lot of the other things like being with my family for an entire year, as opposed to, you know, half of the year and I'm sort of gone the other half, um, not all at once, of course, but off and on it's, it's been a, I've been doing that for years and years. So to be fully immersed in family life was awesome for me to be fully immersed in, you know, I was still able to be very creative and write a lot of music and do a lot of recording. So, um, it's just the touring part that, that got taken out of the equation. And, and like you said, all the income <clears throat> that comes from that, which is, which is the majority of our income. Um, so I will say, like, I think a lot of people felt this way that being forced to slow down and just appreciate uh, certain things that were, that we've taken for granted, um, whether it's our families or, um, you know, even the touring itself, like to, to, to be, have that taken away for a while really puts in a perspective. And I'm, I'm finding myself now just back on tour. Now I'm three days into the first real tour where we're living in a tour bus and we're, um, playing for good sized crowds, still all out outdoors of various, you know, some of them are very, um, COVID safe and pod oriented and some are, a little more questionable free-for-alls. <laughs> so, um, so you know, reintegrating, getting used to that, a little nervous about it, but very excited about it. And I have a new, uh, I don't know, I have some new outlooks in terms of, you know, wanting to retain what I learned from the shutdown, which is just to keep it slow and do one thing at a time and don't try to... Uh, multitask all the time and don't make such a big deal out of things that are not that big of a deal. So, um, you know, so, so things that you, the revelations that you usually have when there's a major change, you know, revelations that come from being forced into stillness, mm -hmm. and quiet and quietude, yep. uh, are just, you know, understanding what you've always taken for granted, which is your, family, uh, for instance, or how much you love playing music with people and for people. And, um, and for me, I did, you know, I, I learned, I, I did a lot of meditation. I got, I got a real meditation habit going and a daily mm -hmm. sort of journaling habit and things that just, uh, are ways for me to, to be much more present than I've, I've have been in the past. And so, so I think, mm -hmm what I'm thinking now is as we get back to normal and I'm out on tour again, uh, I really want to keep those values, um, those lessons in mind and try not to let them just float away after we get back into the rat race. You know, you mentioned um, being able to kind of re explore, uh, you know, important qualities to creation and introspection 
things like quietness, quietude, you mentioned uh, stillness. It's funny that out of a, out of a number of months where there was so much of that, um, of that kind of peace and quiet, you decided I'm going to meet up with a whole bunch of different musical heavy hitters, bring them into my home studio, see where things go. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like an outgrowth of that desire to connect with a bunch of fellow musicians and creators eventually after many twists and turns ended up leading to this debut solo album of yours, Always Smiling. So I do want to back up eventually and get to some of the roots of, of Always Smiling. But uh, since we're, we're there right now, I, I, I want to I understand better how a musician who's so used to being in the studio and being on the road and collaborating physically in person with people is able to so quickly turn on a dime and be more intentional about, about reaching out to uh, other creators who may be able to accompany them. And I imagine sometimes virtually given the constraints of the pandemic, um, but you're able to kind of just be, you're able to keep that creativity going. What did, what did that look like? What did the process itself look like of collaborating and cooperating with other musicians in such a weird time where we were all so disconnected? Yeah. Well, um, first off, I, I really started the process of doing that before the pandemic and not with an album in mind, uh, but just, you know, I've been with the Wood Brothers as my bread and butter, been doing that for 15 years. And we're just this tight niche machine that always collaborates together and it's this bubble, right? And so for my own pleasure, just purely for connecting with friends, uh, before the pandemic started, I took... Um, the, the, the small amounts of time that I had between tours and between family being with family. Um, occasionally I would just get people in the studio um, or to come to my house and write songs, for my friends who would come through town through Nashville where I live and, and just collaborate with people outside of the Wood Brothers just for fun. You know, no, I wasn't trying to make an album. I was just trying to make stuff and, and be creative. Um, so it was then, you know, in the pandemic started and I was like, wow, I got nothing else to do. And I never had this much time to work on whatever I wanted to work on. So I just kept that momentum um, or, or sort of rekindled it and said, well, I'm going to, I want to put this stuff out. I've almost got enough songs for an album here. So it was sort of an accidental, something that really probably would not have happened the way it happened without the pandemic. Um, but I wanted to go back to what we were talking about before and just say, you know, the, how the pandemic really informed the creativity part. Um, yeah. Be because one of the things that the pandemic, I think, taught us is, yet again, is that we're just not in, in control. Like, you know, we just, there's so many things in life that you cannot control. And you have this illusion that you're in control. But, you know, we were in Nashville one night, we had a tornado came from out of nowhere. And I have friends who lost their entire, everything they owned. And some people lost their lives. And uh, there's that, there's, you get hit by a bus, you could get some, you know, and the pandemic just happened to be something really obvious, but, you know, we're never completely in control. And uh, so, you know, something that really helped me and, and inspired me getting into meditation and thinking about this stuff that, that you know, really the, the goal is not to be in control. The goal is to be able to adapt and go with the flow and, um, and stay connected 
with yourself and with people. Um, so I started getting really into the creative process and I'm a real nerd about like biographies and music biographies and interviews and listening to what some of our iconic heroes and even friends, other, you know, my colleagues, you know, how, what makes them, how, how do they do the creative stuff and how do they, mm. um, and I think that my biggest lesson is, you know, the biggest mistake you make it when you're creating something is assuming you're in control of it. Um, and so like someone like Paul Simon, for instance, would say, you know, always let the song lead you. You can't, you can't, and this is kind of vague and woo woo sounding, but you know, the minute you, the part of your brain, you know, I think I split it up, you know, I have this, we have a part of our brain that is very logical and likes control and is judgmental, right? Your logic side. And then you have your more intuitive creative side, which is more tapped into your subconscious. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the side that you want, that I want to just roam free. It's, it's playful. You want it to just, mm -hmm. you know, it, it is, it is not trying to be in control of anything. It's just trying to have fun and, and crank things out, you know? And it's that logical side of the brain that gets in the way. So the minute you think you know what you're writing about and you just do that with this intense intention, your logical brain is usually for me is when I ruin things or when I get stuck. Hmm. And so, so anyway, on, on the subject of just not trying to be in control, um, that's something that I got really interested in and, and applied to some of the, the music that I was making for the album. It's really interesting. Um, T Taylor Goldsmith, frontman of uh, the oh. kind of indie rock band Dawes, talks about that on a Joe Pug working songwriter interview mm -hmm. I listened to. He touches upon that push and pull between wanting to be expressive and impressive is kind of how he paints the dichotomy. Mm -hmm. And when he was being a little bit too desirous of being impressive, particularly yeah. earlier in his career, he felt he was just trying to blow people's minds with all of the intricate theoretical oh, yeah. concepts he knew and wasn't really yeah. focused on, as he puts it, uh, you know, just doing the 10 push-ups he needed to do. He wanted to, he was always doing a hundred push-ups rather than yeah. kind of simplifying things in the right ways. And certainly uh, you, you, I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on this, Oliver, but your music, I think exemplifies picking what can be simplified and, 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 and also keeping in touch with those more complicated, nuanced, theoretical kind of musicianshipy elements that, that, that make your songs, whether it's a solo song or it's a Wood Brothers song or it's a song or it's a King Johnson song, unique. I mean, there's only one sound to an Oliver Wood tune. And the way I see it is, you know, y'all aren't doing, y'all aren't doing a million things brand new. You're doing, a, you, you are bringing in centuries of theoretical musical structure and motif in the form of gospel, soul, funk, blues, jazz, old time, but you're, uh, you're putting your own spin on it. But the way I see it, it's always like kind of in a, in a, in a ra rather uh, a focused place and you're just kind of changing it a little bit, but to a huge effect. Yeah. Yeah. I think of it, I think of it almost like a recipe, like, like we're all of mm. us, we have all these ingredients that could, come from all those genres you were talking about. Um, and, and they are, 
specific ingredients chosen by us. Like, you know, there's gospel music, but then there's certain gospel music that I especially love, for instance, mm. or blues or jazz or whatever. So, so, but they are all these elements that everybody has access to. And then it's, it's, you know, how do you put them together? How do we end up, what, what, what recipe do we come up with? And, and I, I like it because I like that, you know, in order of importance, I like music that is, that has a soulfulness to it, which, which that's pretty general, but somehow that's more important than creativity to me is mm. how it feels, you know, it, it's it, how it feels is more important than how it sounds. <laughs> if that makes sense. Sure. Um, but then after that, the creative choices are what sort of set us apart from each other and, and, and oftentimes those come from our limitations. Like I can't sing like Ray Charles or Aretha Franklin or, or um, you know, Don Henley, you name it. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I have whatever, I have this cranium that sounds like it does and that's right. my limitation, but maybe it's, uh, if I put my recipe together with this cranium and a voice comes out, you know, it's, uh, it's something unique enough uh um although it's not reinventing the wheel right yeah but it's you know the soul part is being able to put your yourself in there somehow and i do you know there's plenty of cliches about it like write about what you know or write the truth or blah blah blah, blah. but but there really there really is something to that and even if you're writing something that's quite ambiguous to the listener if it's coming from a real experience that you're having or that you've experienced through someone else or whatever it is, it's bound to have that soul in it or that, that part that translates ambiguous as it might be where someone could pick it up, give it their own interpretation and it moves them how they need to be moved. You know, you mentioned soul and you mentioned Aretha Franklin, um, just to touch, uh, to, to, to dive right into always smiling, which is your debut solo album. Um, I know I keep trying to get back to Wood Brothers context, but I do want to be mindful of time. And right. I do want to make sure that we that we uh, were able to pick apart some of this really excellent uh, record of yours. Yeah, we're fine, Steve. Don't rush. OK. Um, talk to me a little bit about you bring up soul as being kind of high up on the, the totemic prioritization of, of what music can be and should be for you. I think that's really interesting. Um, and I think it's really meaningful and I can relate to it in a lot of ways. First, first off, I'm curious not to go from uh, ambiguity to literalness too quickly, but I, but I am curious what town you're talking about when you talk about soul of this town. It's one of the, tr one of the, the great tracks on your new, uh, your new record. I'd imagine it could be a bunch of different towns. I, I imagine it might be Boulder where you grew up. It could be Atlanta, which was your one-time hometown, or it could be Nashville, which seems to be where, where you're at now. Um, is that right? And I don't want to, again, I don't want to uh, pull apart the song too oh, okay. much. No, I think it's just a sentiment that came, actually, I co-wrote that song with, with Phil Cook. And he, this was a great example of some uh, collaboration pre-pandemic where Phil and I had just met each other on tour and we've been crossing paths for a couple of years, but we finally got decided we want to write something together. So he came to Nashville and he remarked about all the cranes that were in Nashville. And, you know, we just got into a conversation about just the radical 
gentrification that seems to be happening and it was happening in his hometown and it was happening in Nashville where I lived certainly happened in Atlanta where I used to live and so really that's it it was not about any one city but it was about the concept of you know where did all those people go that used to live there and um uh so a, a pretty common uh thing across the country I think in a lot of markets where you where you see this gentrification and and the displacement of of oftentimes people who are the soul of literally the soul of the town because they have been there for generations and they have, I mean, the food that comes from here, the, the art that comes from here and um, uh, just the way the culture is just gets a facelift. That's not, uh, it's not old anymore. It's not, it's a whole new thing. And the soul is actually t- displaced, you know? Yeah. I, I can relate to that to a degree coming from Charleston where I know you've got a show coming up soon, by the time this podcast comes out, you will have already played that show, or I think it's a run of two shows that correct me if I'm wrong, but the Wood Brothers rescheduled as a result of the pandemic. Uh, yeah. Really looking forward to that. That'll be one of those, I think, pod socially distanced shows um, of the different, types of shows that are still going on that you alluded to at the, at the beginning of the interview. Uh, Charleston, if you're, if you're here already, I'm sure you can, you can see a little bit of that development and that gentrification. I mean, you don't have to look far and wide to see the cranes. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. I've been been coming to Charleston for, you know, 20 years and I definitely can see it here too. It's it's so different. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Think of a city like Charleston, which has a richer history than most American towns. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And a complicated history, of, of, to be complicated, sure. But, uh, but yeah, you'd hate to lose some of that stuff, you know, just, just because of money. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, I, and I can relate in a big way to the sentiment that you expressed uh, regarding, you know, the, the fact that as cities become more developed and, and, and therefore people and sometimes a certain type of person wants to move there and eventually real estate prices go up, cost of living goes up. A lot of those artist types who brought a lot of the culture there or folks who generationally, generationally had been there for years and, and decades and centuries are priced out. Yeah, it's, it's an unfortunate reality that you end up losing some of that creative, artistic, cultural core to a metro center. Yeah. And I, yeah. And ironically, it's the very thing that made those cities desirable. Like, why else would you go to New Orleans, uh, New Orleans or Charleston, you know? Um, but now, like in a place like, like uh, Charleston, I, I, I bet the people that work in all the amazing restaurants can't afford to live anywhere near those restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, before we go too far down that path, cause we could do a three hour interview yeah. about that, <laughs> but, True. but, uh, I, I did want it, to, it's becoming obvious that not just through the music of yours, I've listened to uh, Oliver, but just in the few minutes we've chatted, you're definitely a wordsmith. You're a thoughtful person. You like to create structures out of syntax that are unique and compelling. Um, talk to me a little bit, if you would, about, the influence, if any, uh, that your mom, having been a poet, had on your upbringing, your brother's upbringing? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, both my parents, uh, so our, our mother was a, um, a published poet and um, sort of got really serious about that later, a little bit later in her life, like, like 
when she was in her 40s, she went back to school and really studied poetry and got really good at it. And uh, and our, our dad, on the other hand, um, was a, is still a great guitar player and folk singer. So, you know, we grew up with him playing around the house and always playing guitar and knows hundreds of songs. And, um, and sadly, I think we took both of those things for granted, both both the music and the poetry uh, as hmm. young kids. Sure. Uh, we were around it, so of course it, it soaked in, but um, I was probably more interested in my dad's record collection than listening to him play. Um, not the case once it came, once I got older and realized, oh my God, he's so good. And same thing for my mom. I, it wasn't until uh, after she got published a couple times and I didn't, you know, I wasn't even really into poetry. I wasn't even really into songwriting uh, at first. I was a guitar nerd. And then, so anyway, point is, is much later on, I think I was influenced by my mother's writing. And not to say that I tried to emulate it or anything, but just appreciated, you know, poetry is similar to songwriting, but it's its own thing. But I appreciated the how powerful it was and, and again this goes back to it was based on her actual experience hmm. so of course she takes artistic freedoms and makes it beautiful and and uh, you know is a wordsmith i think that's the word you use like just makes an art out of putting it together but mm -hmm. the content is very real and very moving and um you know i know i know her history so when i read one of her poems i know what she's talking about but as a newbie, if you were just reading one of her poems, you didn't know what her history was, it would still move you to the bone because it's got some real truth in it um, and some real experience in it that you can feel. You just might not know what it's exactly what she's talking about, which that's a huge deal for me. I'm, I'm a huge fan of content having sort of an ambiguity to it. Um, but an obvious emotional punch to it. You know what I mean? So that oftentimes uh, two different listeners could interpret in two different ways. Are you a words first guy or a music first guy or some combination or it varies? Uh, I'm sort of every combination at this point. I never okay. really was really into words as a younger man. I was much more into the music and now I'm much more into the words. But as far as putting songs together, I think I do it in all the different ways. Sometimes I have a guitar riff or a cool melody in my mind. And other times I just have uh, a chorus or uh, some phrase that I came up with or heard somebody say and uh, found interesting. Um, but I think like a lot of other writers, I have you know, notebooks full of ideas that some of them are crap and some of them are great and they're just waiting for the right music to come along. Um, but then once in a while you write something together, you know, the music and the words come together. So something that I've, I've found really interesting lately is just experimenting with ways to access that inspired part of the brain, you know, the, the, the playful side of the brain and try to quiet down the logical side. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've actually used methods where, okay, if I'm stuck on a song, uh, or if I have some great music that needs some words, for instance, I might go on a walk or I might go on a drive uh, or occupy my body with something menial like that to do, you know, something that takes a little bit of focus. And I think this is now a proven 
fact that I've read lots of writers do these things. They either go on a walk or go driving. And that's when that, uh, that problem solving inspirational kind of part of your brain starts talking a little bit because your logical brain is too busy trying to walk in a straight line or drive and stay between the mayo yeah. mustard or whatever, you know? Yeah. So um, and I read like Paul Simon, you know, he throws a baseball against the wall and catches it. Mm. Or, you know, every, some people have things that they do to allow their brain to process things and to, and this, again, this is not the logical brain. This is, this is that part of the brain that's in the back sure. that, is already working on something um, while you're not even consciously aware of it. You, you're, that part of your brain might be figuring out the next lyric or, you know, some people do this, they, they work on something right before bed mm-hmm. and they're stuck and they, and then they go to bed and wake up and start writing right away. And, you know, they say your brain keeps working while you're asleep too. Yep. So, no, I believe that. Uh, yeah. So, um, so I like these kind of things for writing songs. I like trying things like that. See if I can trick myself into, into being, into not caring, you know, cause mm-hmm. too much of the time your logical brain is just a judge and you don't want to be a judge. You just want to be a witness. You just want to watch yourself have fun and, and spout out a bunch of stuff and whether it's good or bad, you know, you, you mentioned, yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I've heard that as well. I, I think it's why a lot of people fidget sometimes or move their legs yeah. around or, are, you know, hammering a fence while they're thinking of something else, whether it's exactly. a math problem or it's a, a, a piece of music. Exactly. You mentioned Paul Simon a few times now. I am curious for a guy who creates music that sounds so unique and is such an interesting blend of different genres and different voices and different timbres. Who are some of your influences? I mean, it's obvious there are folks like, you know, Lightning Hopkins, Dr. John, John Prine, Aretha Franklin, Little Feet, Charles Mingus. I mean, I could I could go on. But who are you as a music guy that tries to shine a light on on music, particularly new music? Who are you listening to now? They don't have to be a new artist. If there is one out there, I'm sure my fans would be curious to hear it. But but who are you? Who's like that one, you know, band or musician or songwriter who you're throwing on way more than usual right now and, and is either giving you inspiration in, in overt ways or or in, or in implicit ways? I got to say, when I, my, my listening habits are super eclectic and inconsistent hmm. at this point. Um so, I mean, I have some real go-to stuff that I always come back to. Sure. Which is like, uh, you know, the band, uh, mm-hmm. Ray Charles, uh, J.B. Lenore, Snooks Eaglin, yeah, Dr. John, Alan Toussaint, um, Leon Russell. That's stuff that I just always go back to. And I do hear new things that come out that I, that I really like, <laughs> but it's... it's I'm just trying to, sorry, I'm trying to think of things in the last five or 10 years that I've like revisited a lot sure. because they were that, they made, inspired me that much. Sure. Uh, there's some kind of random stuff. <laughs> like uh, Elvis Costello made an album with The Roots. I think that was yep. like six or eight years ago. I go back to that album all the time. That's a fascinating uh, blend right there to me. Um, really liked that. Uh, so, but I'm, I just, there's certain, you know, I'm always like when I hear something that's beyond just crafty, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? There's a lot of amazing songwriters 
who just write some really smart stuff. But how often does it go with some kind of quirky, you know, how often is the music as unique as the, as the lyrics? Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for instance, a Tom Waits is somebody who I've just always like, I love everything about what he does. Yeah. Um, as far as. Yeah. There's only one Tom Waits. Yeah. Cause he's really doing something that just sounds like him. And so it's kind of cool to, uh, to think about people like that. And some of my favorites like that are where I just love immediately recognize and love what they do. Like Levon Helm or Lowell George mm-hmm. or Ray Charles. Yep. Um, um, and even just some of the iconic, you know, I, I was, my, my band before the Wood Brothers was called King Johnson and we just named it after all the Kings and the Johnsons that were in blues. And all of those guys have that <laughs> thing, you know, BB King, nobody sounds like that. He's often copied, but, uh, or Freddie King or Albert King for that matter, or, mm-hmm. or Lonnie Johnson or Robert Johnson, uh, or Tommy Johnson. These are all people that, uh, I don't know, have their own recipe, you know. You talk about King Johnson, which is a which is a, a great band. It was the predecessor to the Wood Brothers in a lot of ways. Um, and you were you were a part of that band, and and y'all did very, very funky fusion stuff. There was blues, as you mentioned. Um, it, it had a very unique sound, but also drew on a lot of the greats. Um, why, how, how did you get into that style of music, which eventually ended up taking different shapes and forms in the Wood Brothers and, and now with your solo album? I mean, where, where was the, what Petri dish were you in that like infused you with all of this soul and funk and, uh, and, and jazz? I mean, not everyone gets into that. The Wood Brothers, there are tons of brothers band, bro, bands with brothers, right? There are tons of, yeah folks these days doing doing an indie rock or a folk thing and maybe they're pulling in a little jazz here and there maybe there's some horns maybe you'll see an upright bass for a couple songs but when you listen to a wood brothers song and i know this has been in other interviews you've had but i really want to get to the heart of it what what why is it so unique where did you come from musically creatively environmentally that brought you to a place where when you put your stamp on it, you or your brother or, or Jano, who's also in the Wood Brothers, puts their stamp on it. There's no disputing the fact that this is a one of a kind tune. I mean, I, I, again, I think it's sort of a recipe thing. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Using sure. that as, a, as an analogy. Like too. But, um, you know, one thing that happened with my brother and myself is I'm four years older and we, you know, we left the house went different directions as kids we played a little bit together as kids but we loved our dad's record collection my brother got heavy into jazz he moved eventually to new york i moved to atlanta so we went in totally different ways and i got immersed into uh you know all kinds of roots music a lot of it comes out of the south but like everything from from delta blues and gospel to the allman brothers and things like that um, and, um, and then my brother, of course, got, was in Modesky Wood or Modesky Martin and Wood. He still is. And that mm-hmm. was more on the jazz tip and more experimental and, and, uh, and improvisational, no singing. Um, but we still had a lot of the same roots. You know, when my brother and I were growing up, we listened to my dad's record collection. We listened to folk music and blues music. And, but either way, we went different directions for a good 10 years before we got back together to play and to start the wood brothers and so that recipe came 
together as, okay, you know, his background of those 10 years was completely different than mine. Um, and we just mixed together and taught each other what we learned. And that was, ended up being uh, its own recipe, you know, of sorts and something that, that uh, you could, you could, uh, I don't know, pick out of a lineup maybe just because of the yeah. element there. Um, sure. So, you know, so much of, of being creative and making music is really just creative choices, which sounds obvious, but like sometimes that just means avoiding things, you know, oh, like avoiding something you've done before or avoiding something that you hear everybody else doing or somebody else doing. And that, but it, but again, it's not being in control of it. It's not that we know how something's going to turn out. We're just going to try something we haven't tried yet and see what happens, you know? So again, it's like one of those things you can't take. I, I always feel like that idea that you can't take credit sometimes for things. You, you, we're just stumbling things on things, new things. And that's, I think that's what's fun about it. You know, that's the joy of it. Yeah. I love the idea of avoiding I think in design, whether it's visual art or, or auditory art or what have yeah. you, it, it's a lot. It's a lot of what's not there and, and intentionally not there that makes what is there so important. Exactly. Yeah, and try to try to some things that are a little unexpected, and and sometimes that's that's one of the cool things about how you know when you think of your in, your creative influences. Well, I listed all my some of my favorites. Um, but, you know, the people that you don't, whose music you don't care for, uh, those are influences, too. Like if you're in Nashville and you don't like commercial country music, uh, which that's not my thing, but it, it helps. It's a sounding board. It's like, OK, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to mm -hmm. do that. Um, <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Just in yeah, the same yeah. way that, that uh, punk rock was a middle finger to disco or whatever was right. popular at the time or mm -hmm. whatever. It's, it's kind of nice to have things to react against. Yeah. And that's part of your, um, and you know, all of, all of our, uh, our peers that we play with are, are like that too. You know, we learn from each other all the time, what we want to do and what we don't want to do. You know, you, t you mentioned relinquishing control uh, in, in an interview with Ira Haberman for a podcast a few years ago. Um, I think it was right when One Drop of Truth, your 2018 Wood Brothers album was coming out. I've seen it in kind of the marketing run up to Always Smiling, your, your solo debut album, this idea of, of, of letting go. You're, you're mentioning it here. It's obviously a motif that's important to you stylistically. Is that I, I've always heard uh, your your music through the years um, as being one that tests the perimeter of of where you can go, but never kind of like walks over that line for too long. Um, so it seems like there are these guardrails. So there's an element of yeah. control, but the idea of kind of allowing yourself some leeway within those parameters is yeah. is interesting. Yeah, you're right, but that's a good point. There is there are some parameters. And I, it's interesting because sometimes I admire or, or envy people who have, don't have, seem not to have any parameters. Um, for instance, like, you know, as far as language goes, I love language that is not, that you can't, that is somewhat timeless. Like I would never use the word cell phone in my song. I'm not saying it's a, <laughs> yeah, bad, I'm sure, not saying no. it's a bad thing to do, right. but I I don't want to say computer. I don't want to say, uh, I, I don't know if that makes sense. Like it does. Yeah. I like, I like, and that's just one of my things and I'm not, and I don't judge those who use that stuff, but 
that's one of my parameters is how can I, how can this song not have a time uh, reference, you know, other than I might make reference to this pandemic somehow when I'm not going to say the word pandemic or COVID, <laughs> but I might use it as a, a certain metaphor for it or yeah. Something. Yeah, you know the I mean? the, yeah, of course. The best protest song, I totally know what you mean, but the best, you know, 60, 1968, 1969 protest songs were not saying the term Vietnam War. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, um, yeah. And so, again, the ambiguity thing, I think. But I think I have similar things. I have parameters musically, too, where, okay, I so far have not used a drum machine or, you know, there are certain sounds that I think of as organic or i don't know I, I, i'm sure i have hang-ups about that too like oh i don't want it to sound too modern or, or things like that although some of i've heard some great stuff that i love some hip-hop that sort of mixes old and new and, and I, so I, I i like those things but i find that uh i definitely have parameters in my head so so i am controlling in some in some regard um but as far as being creative with those parameters and just, yeah, like you said, maybe pushing the limits of them or, again, just trying a combination that I haven't tried yet or that I haven't heard yet, uh, at least in my own self, is, is always a fun challenge. Cool. Well, we're, we're, uh, we're going to wrap up soon, Oliver, because I know we're getting down to the wire here. I did just have a couple questions left. Um, is it strange to pivot to to a solo act. And I'm curious how your brother reacted to that. Obviously it's not brand new in that you kind of were doing originally your own things musically, right? You were in your own bands. You came up, as you mentioned, one in New York, one in Atlanta, stylistically we're experimenting in different worlds. But as you mentioned at the beginning as well, your bread and butter for 15 plus years was the Wood Brothers. Now you're kind of just build as Oliver would, even though you have a number of shows together as the Wood Brothers this summer. Is that, is that weird? Is it exciting? Is it, is there any sort of, uh, is there any sort of strangeness there amongst between you and your brother? And I'm not trying to do like a talk show, like trying to, is there, is there animosity? (laughs) (laughs) Truly just curious about how that dynamic changes or if it changes. Uh, I don't really know. It, th- this solo thing is such a new thing for me that I have no idea where it will lead. I think of it as a, as a side project because the Wood Brothers is still going strong. Now, I do have some, some shows booked, um, but as far as how different it feels, well, it's weird to even call it a solo thing. It's solo by name but really it's just new collaborations. So it's collaborating with different people and playing shows with different people. Although Jono has been playing shows with me. Um, but, uh, but really to me, you know, if, if it was truly solo and I was all alone, I don't think I would like it. I think the, the, the whole thing about music for me is that it's, it's a connector, you know, it's something that connects you to other musicians and then to listeners and, uh, for me, this quote solo project has really just been a new bunch of collaborations that I could connect with with other fellow musicians. And, um, and uh, you know, my brother will still be doing things with Modesky, Martin and Wood here and there. And I think I think we all just want to stay creative and, um, and busy doing what we like to do. Yeah. 
And doing what you like to do is, uh, it, it, would you say it's more studio stuff or more live stuff or some of both? What are you most looking forward to getting back into I, now that we're kind of getting oh, back to I, some I semblance of normal? Like, yeah, I definitely like both. I mean, it's, okay. they're both very different things, but I think there's no substitute for for playing for an audience. And uh, yeah, that's the that's probably the most rewarding thing, just being present for a a really good concert where fans, uh, you know, audience and band are just sort of rise to this next level all together at once. Like that's the most uh, healing and, and joyous thing there, there is. And uh, of course the, the, the creative side, the creative side of, of being in the studio and writing and recording is a, is great. And it's a great privilege and it, and it's sort of, we need that to fuel the, the shows, but, uh, but yeah, playing live music is the best. Well, I've seen you in Charleston once before, Oliver, with your uh, with your brother and the whole band. This was a number of years ago, uh, and I'm going to be seeing you in a couple of days at uh, at your show where your build just as your I know you don't like the word, but your your solo uh, act. Looking forward to that. That's going to be in a couple of days here in Charleston at the Spoleto Festival. Uh, what are you? Oh, what are you actually, most looking? Well, Steve, let me just correct you because oh please I, the Spoleto please. Festival. It's oh, that's the Wood Brothers. Yep, hundred uh, percent. I appreciate that, Oliver. Sorry about that. Yeah, I will. I will. We're already in town and ready to go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That was my bad. I uh, actually have that even in my notes here. No um, yeah, that'll be a Wood Brothers concert. So let me put a fine point yeah, on that. That'll be. Yep, Wood Brothers in Charleston, part of the Spoleto Festival, which is always a really cool cultural festival every year. It was put on hold last year, so we're all really excited to get out and see you all doing your thing this year. It'll be kind of a socially distanced thing. I know that has already sold out and has been so for a while. What are you most looking forward to with that show, Oliver? Oh, we always love playing uh, in Charleston. Um, we've usually played at, played at the Charleston Music Hall the last few years. Um, but yeah, to play outside before the full on summer hits and it gets too swampy, uh, it's going to be great. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going to wrap it up there. I really appreciate your time. I'm hoping for the best for you, your brother. And it sounds like it's, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to, to admit, but I think I've been pronouncing the uh, third part of the Wood Brothers incorrectly. It sounds like his name is John O'Ricks. Is that right? Jano Ricks is yes, correct. It looks like J it's J A N O, but it's Jano. Yeah. I've heard Jano and I've heard Jano on, on YouTube videos. So I need to, uh, I need to make sure I correct that from here on out. So I've seen you Jano and your brother Chris uh, before, and I'm looking forward to seeing you all again this week. And Oliver, thank you again yeah. for just creating really awesome, uh, original, innovative music that is still timeless in a lot of ways whether it's part of your band or it's uh, just you collaborating with some heavy hitters and good friends. It's really, truly always a pleasure to listen to your stuff. Uh, I really enjoy it. My family does as well. So wanted to wish you the best and really just wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking some time. I know you're busy as you're getting back to normal and getting back into recording and prepping. And so just wanted to yeah, extend my gratitude to you. My pleasure. Take care, Oliver. Thanks again. Thanks. Right. Take care, man. What about the soul of this town?
about the soul of this 